to America now. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Either you're with us or you are with the terrorists. If you've got health care already, then you can keep your plan if you are satisfied with it. Donald Trump is not going to be president of the United States. Take it to the bank. Together, we will make America great again. We shall never surrender. Never surrender. It's what you've been waiting for all day. Buck Sexton with America Now. Join the conversation. Call Buck Toll Free at 844-900-BUCK. That's 844-900-2825. Sharp mind, strong voice. Buck Sexton. Russia and Trump and collusion. Oh, my. This is what the media is so focused on. Oh, there we go. It's becoming like my, my theme music here. Oh, did, did Comrade Trump fire FBI Director Comey to cover up for his collusion? Um, no. <laughs> Actually, no. I, I'm having a hard time with, uh, with a lot of the... Uh, with a lot of the narratives you're hearing out there today and you cannot overstate the hyperbole i knew this would happen last night when i was here on the show with you and was very fortunate to be able to break the news apparently the news got broken to comey by watching the tv and he did not think it was serious at first so they thought it was he thought it was a, a gag a joke um nope it was not uh but this is what the Democrats have been waiting for, they run with the little tidbits, the little parts of stories that allow them to uh, move the narrative just enough to justify bringing it up in the news cycle. But here we have the momentous situation of the head investigator. This is this is now the Democrat narrative, right? The head investigator of Trump and Russia and collusion. Uh, he's been fired this is worse than Watergate. It's it's treason. It's the the end of the republic. You cannot overstate how uh, completely freaked out much of the intelligentsia, the Democrats, the left. They they're acting like this is the most atrocious thing to have ever happened. Uh, th- this is something that is keeping them up at night. They can't sleep. I mean, they're in a cold sweat over Trump's firing of James Comey. Which is like really weird because they've been saying that James Comey should be fired for quite a while. It depends on the day. Uh, This, more than any issue that I can think of in recent memory, uh, is a a test. Um, This is a means of seeing who is honest about what they think and who is just completely and utterly and rapaciously partisan. Uh, So those who are saying Comey should be fired and are on record saying Comey should be fired, are now saying this is terrible. And they don't care. It doesn't matter. And Democrats, without providing ev- any evidence as to why this is so horrific and why we should be so uh, terrified about this, um, they are pressing this storyline as much as they possibly can. Uh, we, we Just to give you a little sampling of what it was like today, I'm sitting here, there's nothing else that anyone wants to talk about, by the way. Uh, Later on in the show today, uh, I'll discuss what's going on in Syria and the campaign against the Islamic State. Uh, We'll talk about some other things because it's not enough to sit here for three hours and either just play offense or defense for Team Trump, right? Not that I try to do either of those things anyway, ever, but that's what most of the media has been all day. It's just showing which team you're on 
and what, whatever the subject matter may be, whatever the specifics of the claim or the accusation are at any given time, you're just digging in, not you, but one in the media is just digging in on one side, and this is either all the evidence we need that Trump is a traitor, which I find to be both uh, laughable and dangerous, laughable in that there's still no evidence for this and that's such a leap, and for all the reasons I'll, I'll get into it. Look, we have to talk about it because it's the main story in the country today, and it goes right to the heart of the legitimate uh, of legitimacy and the credibility of this administration. Uh, it does matter what happens uh, in the days ahead as a result of this decision because it affects perception of the administration, and perception is largely going to be reality when it comes to policy. Um, but just to give you a little sampling uh, a little hysteria a la carte from the Democrats. Uh, well, first, let me just give you this. Here are Democrats that were calling for Comey, the former, now former FBI director. You know he's 6'8", by the way? Impressive. Didn't know that. Uh, found that out in the in the midst of all this reportage and uh, rending of garments and, and, and crying and gnashing of teeth and freaking out. Um, but yeah, Comey's really tall. Uh, but they were calling for him to resign, and here's just a, a sampling of those calling for him to resign. I am so disappointed in Comey. He has let the country down for partisan purposes, and that's why I called him the new J. Edgar Hoover, because I believe that. Do you believe that uh, Jim Comey should resign, Senator Reid? Of course. All I can tell you is the FBI director has no credibility. I think he made a mistake on this, and he clearly has a double standard when it comes to uh, Donald Trump and or the or keep him out of it. Just when it came to the hacking, and he says, "Well, it's too close to the election uh, to talk about that," and yet it's not too close to the election to talk about. Uh, a, a, the emails that he says may not be significant. So I think he made a mistake. Should he step down? I think he should take a hard look at uh, what he has done. Uh, and I think it would not be a bad thing for the American people if he did step down. You got Bernie Sanders there? You had Harry Reid? You had a number of people. Prominent Democrats talking about how Comey should step down. He resigned. He messed up. And that was just we just pulled those together today. But that was then, and this is now, and it's all about what the political play is for the for the Democrats. And look, there are plenty of Republicans too who are just who are reactionary, knee jerk. Everything Trump does is is brilliant and perfect, which I, I find really unbecoming for a conservative. I find that really uh, troubling and problematic because conservatives shouldn't be holding anyone up as a savior, as a messiah. These are just politicians, everyone. They're just people doing a job. They're making mistakes because all people make mistakes, and we should hold them to account and just be honest about what's going on, conservative or Democrat, right? Democrats, we they, they hold Obama was a messiah figure. We know it. They go for the cult of personality. They, I, I don't like seeing that on the right. There's some of it going on, but um, it's certainly not as as prevalent a part of our political culture as it is for the Democrats. But anyway, so you got Democrats saying that Comey should resign. And then you got this happening. The dismissal of Director Comey establishes a very troubling pattern. We face a looming constitutional crisis, very much 
like happened in 1973, the Midnight Massacre. To fire James Comey is absolutely laughable. Fails to pass any smell test. And so there must be other reasons here for that firing. Can we point out that the emperor is not wearing any clothes? They will put in a stooge who will shut down this investigation. These people know nothing or or they're just complete liars. And it's really when we're talking about Democrat politicians, usually a combination of both. It doesn't shut down an investigation. OK, that that's let's start right there. The number two at the FBI who will be acting until they get a, a, somebody in the top spot is a Democrat. And there's a, a digital trail of everything that they've been doing. This is why I, I had a friend text me when I was in the air yesterday. You know, if you're as one of my one of my uh, erudite but uh, lacking in political wisdom friends, he texted me and he said, uh, why do this unless you're guilty? I'm like, because this this doesn't do anything, really. It, it doesn't shut down the investigation. The investigation will continue. The Senate's doing an investigation. The House has been holding hearings. The media is on the story all the time. How does this make it go away? In in fact, it, it in the short term makes it worse. I think we can all see that now, right? It, meaning it makes the perception of it worse. It gives the media something to work with. But once again, this is like when I'm having the climate change debate and people say you're not a scientist. Well, I actually do have a law enforcement and, well, mostly an intelligence background. I spent a little time in law enforcement. Um, but I understand how these investigations work. And I, I certainly understand that you can't make a an investigation disappear by replacing somebody at the head of the FBI when he responds to the DOJ anyway. And, and really, the DOJ, the, the Jeff Sessions, is who could shut down the investigation. He's recused himself. But the, the, the theory doesn't even add, the theory doesn't make sense. It's like the collusion theory. It doesn't make sense, right? I've gone over this with you, and I, I'm waiting for somebody to come up with an effective response to this, a challenge to this, which is that there's no, even if you thought that Trump was a traitor, which I do not, and I think it's a scurrilous accusation and people should be ashamed for making it, but they make it. Even if you thought that was true, colluding with Russia is not a good idea. It doesn't make any sense. So if you will take the leap to Trump is a bad guy who would do anything to be president, the guy's a billionaire, he wants to play golf and like be famous and hang out. I don't think he needs to betray his country to become president. I don't think he'd want to do that. It, uh, that also makes no sense. But putting that aside for a second. Um, colluding with Russia is, is idiotic. There, there's no purpose to it, right? Whether you think Russia hacked the, tried to hack the election, hacked Podesta's accounts, how we can't even speak about it without stumbling into the politicized terminology that's already being used here, but it doesn't make sense. But firing Comey to end the investigation also doesn't make sense. Look, so if you were to ask me, well, what do I think happened here? I think that Comey was, uh, I think Comey did make some mistakes and no serious person who understands the law would claim otherwise. The whole I'm going to step in front of the speeding train for Loretta Lynch explanation that Comey gave for when he had held that. I watched it live. I'm thinking this is bizarre. FBI director saying we're not that no reasonable prosecutor. He doesn't speak for prosecutors. That's not his. call. It, it is literally not his call what he did. But, of course, then he was so honest and he, he was the America's favorite civil servant, right, according to the Democrats and the media. And then 
you go forward and he brings up an investigation that has uh, that, that or new new information into the investigation of Hillary Clinton's email server because he says that the sit on it would have been wrong, but that's not really true either because the FBI investigates quietly all the time. So he made two enormous errors in judgment that only make sense if you think that this is an individual who was trying to show both sides that he could play it straight down the center. But that's also not his job. That's not what he's supposed to do. Um, I agree here with Senator Rand Paul, not whom I think would be the first person you think would be jumping to the defense of the administration on this one. But here's what Rand Paul had to say. No evidence that the Trump administration or campaign was connected to Russia or committed any crime. No evidence at all of committing a crime. There's not even an accusation that I know of, of what crime would have potentially been committed. There's a lot of hypocrisy going on. Many of these Democrats, including Chuck Schumer, said they lost confidence in Comey a long time ago. Hillary Clinton's been blaming Comey. They should be thanking President Trump for getting rid of Comey because he politicized something that may well have had something to do with uh, Hillary Clinton's loss. When was the appropriate time to fire this guy? When was it going to be okay for the Democrats? Oh, please. Yeah. If if he did it in January, it might have been a little bit less of a of a PR nightmare, but they still would have jumped on this whole thing and said that he's shutting down the investigation and and they've created this whole story. There's still not a single piece of evidence. I mean, we have the Washington Post reporting on alleged intercepts of a phone call with the incoming national security advisor. I mean, that is the length that some government servants will go to. They will violate their oath. They will violate the law, assuming those transcripts are accurate and the reports are true, uh, in order to hurt the administration But we haven't found a single piece of evidence yet. And Yates, sitting there in the testimony earlier this week, the acting attorney general, Sally Yates, who says, well, I can't comment on whether there's evidence of collusion one way or the other. The director of national intelligence can comment. He says no. He has access to whatever the government has. He can see whatever he wants to see. He's the director of national intelligence. But Sally Yates can't say yes or no. Why? Because they have to keep this. They have to keep the, the investigation going. As I was saying to you earlier in the week, the process is the punishment. The endless investigation is the goal. They're not going to get anything because it makes no sense. Why would they get anything? And they've been trying to get something and we found nothing. They've had an army of people looking at this, an army of journalists on it. Not a single piece of evidence yet. What, they're, they're suddenly they're going to find the tape of Putin talking to Trump about, yes, we've uh, worked this out. You'll win the election. I mean, this is just crazy talk. But that's what's so troubling here is that they have lost their minds. Um, mainstream journalists, famous, rich, pampered journalists will look so stupid at the end of this if there's nothing that they're all in. How can they turn back? And Democrats are just being opportunistic, but that's what they are. They're unprincipled, opportunistic, political jokesters. Um, But more on this team. 844-900-2825. 844-900-BUCK. What do you think about Comey? I I, I know some of you have got some thoughts on this one. And uh, we'll hit a break. We'll be right back. Why did you fire Director Comey? Because he wasn't doing a good job, very simply. He was not doing a good job. Wasn't doing a good job. Guy serves at the pleasure of the president. I know FBI directors have a, what, a 10-year term, um, but it's it's still a, 
at-will job in the sense that the president can fire you at any point in time. Um, that that's that's just the way that our government is. We can wish that it were some other way, but that's not. That's uh, yeah. That's that's the way that it is. Um, let's take uh, some calls here. Uh, Ann in Virginia, welcome to the Freedom Hut, Ann. Oh, Buck, we have to talk fast because you get exempted from high school baseball stuff. Wait, what? Your show gets exempted because of high school baseball. Oh, okay. All right, Ann, anything else in your mind? Yes, yes. I want to tell you, you have the best radio voice, and I wondered what your background was. Um. Well, thank you. And, uh, yeah, I was a CIA officer, grew up in New York City, went to Amherst College, and then got into media about six years I ago. I know that, but I mean your accent. Where does it come from? New York Where City. New York City. Huh? Yeah, I'm a, I'm a Manhattanite, actually. It comes from New York City. But thank you, Ann. I appreciate you calling in. Thank you for your kind words. Lee in Pennsylvania, WWVA. What's up, Lee? Well, uh, I just wanted to make a comment. You know, the whole time... Uh, they were grilling Comey uh, about this ongoing investigation with Trump and the collusion with the Russians. Um, he couldn't give any information. But when uh, two weeks after Trump said uh, he was being wiretapped by Obama, he was real quick to say, oh, there's no evidence of that. Like, it takes a year and a half to do one investigation, but he made the other one uh, – seemed like it was a week-long investigation and he was done nothing yeah i don't i don't buy the the yates position uh, or the comey position that we can't now with comey it may be because of um uh, you know the ongoing investigation asked before he got fired i can understand that there's there's more leeway there to not give an answer to a, a very important question but with yates either you know evidence of collusion exists or, or you don't and to say that to Give right. give an answer. One of the others classified. I mean, she she could know about it because she could have heard somebody talking in the hallway. I mean, you know, we don't know if it's classified or not. Classification has to do with the sources and methods. So so I, that I was very surprised that people let her just sort of skate on that one. Yeah yeah, I can't say because uh, it's classified. No, she could she could answer that question. She just couldn't necessarily tell us how you know. But if she answered it one way or the other, then she'd have then she'd have to live with that answer, right? She'd have to stand behind that answer. But they don't want an answer. They just want to keep going. They want to keep digging. And as long as they can say, well, we can't tell you if there's evidence of collusion because that's classified. Well, it'll be classified forever. It'll be classified for decades. We'll never find out. Well, and another thing that I think is funny, you know, Clapper said there's no evidence. Several people have said there's no evidence of Trump colluding with the Russians. But there's been all kinds of evidence that's come up that uh, Trump was, in fact, surveilled throughout the months of the campaign and you know Tommy never admitted that he yeah always- if i were trump by the way at this point lee i i would just i would take the public relations hit and say that you know start start declassifying stuff he's the president he can demand he can declassify anything he wants that's what i would do yeah. and people would say oh you're interfering with the investigation they're going to say that anyway and if he's declassifying information that the public should know, I mean, they should redact some parts of it, presumably, if it comes from sensitive places. But um, we need the, we need the truth here, man. People are calling the president a traitor. We need the truth. Lee, uh, thank you. We'll be right back. Team. Welcome back to the Freedom Hut on an island of liberty where you're the party and it's full of fellow patriots. Buck Sexton kicks it off. 
They are just untethered. They are unmoored. They they have lost it over this Comey thing. And it's saying something for Democrats to reach that point because we've been told now for, we were told for the opening weeks of the administration and the months leading up to it that Trump would lead to fascism. And then that got a little quieter. You know, when when Trump's response to a federal judge overturning his executive order was, well, we'll, we'll we will go through the legal proceeding and, and use the courts and figure out what happens next. It's, it's hard to scream about the long, dark night of fascism when that's uh, when that's the response of these of the supposed fascist of the authoritarian government. Uh, but on on Morning Joe, which is uh, a, a show that people watch, I don't really know. Why? But they do. Um, not that many of them, but enough. There was a, a political commentator, John Meacham. I must confess to be in the middle of, I try to read several books at a time, not like I have more than one set of eyes, and I can, but you know what I mean. I, I switch back between different books. And on my active list of books right now, I'm in the midst of Meacham's biography of Andrew Jackson. I'm assuming it's the same John Meacham as I see here on this. I'm pretty sure it is. Here's what he said on Morning Joe. We don't actually have the uh, audio of it, but it's fine because my, my dramatic reading of it will be even more exciting than the audio from Morning Joe. What we've heard, and we heard it in your great interview with Sarah Huckabee Sanders a minute ago, is is that that's talking point out there that if you listen to the Trump folks that he was decisive, he moved quickly. That's strongman talk. That's authoritarian talk. They are trying to bully their way through the fact that the president of the United States has removed someone at will who is in charge of an investigation that could lead to treason. You know, any investigation can lead to anything, really. You know, you could be investigating somebody for tax fraud and find out that they're involved in human trafficking. So you can get away with this an investigation that, quote, could lead to treason. Uh, but that is quite a charge, isn't it? Uh, th- this is why I-, I start to feel more and more like it, it doesn't really matter what we say or what the, uh, the, what the facts are at the end of this investigation or, or during the investigation. It doesn't matter what the facts are at all. Uh, people hate this president because they view his entire being, his presidency, the people he surrounds himself with, his message, his approach to them, to to them, to the opinion makers in this country, the elites, the overpaid and pampered uh, media types at the mainstream outlets uh, who make all kinds of money and get overpaid for their books and are invited to speak at universities and are overpaid for that too and everything, that Trump dismisses them or is not even uh, willing to bow down to them a little bit for their favor, enrages them. It makes them really upset. And so it's not about the Russia investigation. They they just truly and utterly hate what this... They don't really know Trump. I, I think they also dislike Trump on as much of a personal level as they can without necessarily knowing him. Uh, they don't like his style. They don't like his tone. They don't like his approach. Um, but they hate what this administration stands for, um, which is for once somebody who doesn't just play the game their way. He doesn't bow down, doesn't sit around and say, what will the New York Times think of this? What will the Washington Post think of this? Uh, what will fancy biographers write about me in years to come? Fancy meaning overpaid, 
from top imprints and, you know, all the rest of it. So they hate this guy. They completely and utterly hate Trump, and that that's what drives so much of this. Um, I have to say that a, another aspect of the discussion that I think is more important than you're hearing from most uh, from most participants in this discussion is that the highly politicized DOJ is a, is a legacy of the Obama administration. Uh, the DOJ is now a political actor. Whether you go to prison or not can depend on your politics, can depend on the D or the R next to your name, even if you're not an elected office, by the way. Uh, how harshly the Justice Department deals with you uh, can be a function of your politics, especially if they're known in some way. If you're a conservative, uh, if you are on the right, you can expect to be treated, you could expect to be treated poorly by the Obama administration. And this is a, a very disconcerting legacy of what we've been through over the last eight years uh, with Eric Holder and then Loretta Lynch. You had people who first and foremost, their loyalty in office was to the administration, to the Obama administration. It was not to the law. It was not to fair play. It was not to principles that are universally held by all Americans and we know this because Comey's whole justification for what he did in the Hillary uh, investigation when he stepped out in front of the American people and said that no reasonable prosecutor bring charges, but um, incredibly careless, uh, incredibly careless activities by Hillary Clinton could have endangered national security. Uh, that was unprecedented. That's not something that he should have done. But he knew that Loretta Lynch didn't have, and this is true, I mean, his assessment of this is true, Loretta Lynch didn't have the credibility with the American people to do it without it looking like, well, the fix was in from the start. Not after she met with Bill Clinton on the tarmac. No way. No way. And what you see is that there should also be a recognition among all of us that no matter what they found on Hillary Clinton, no matter how egregious and continuous and repeated the violations of her obligation to protect classified information were, Democrats were never going to be okay with any criminal charges brought against her at all. Not even a misdemeanor charge, nothing. So she was, for Democrats, she was truly above the law. And I was uh, over at CNN in the early days of the, well, I was there for the whole of the election, but I was there in the early days of the Clinton email scandal. And I was uh, I was always saying, bring me on TV. Bring somebody on TV who will try to tell, who will try to tell the American people that what Hillary did is okay. I will I will dismantle them on air, and they knew it. And they there were people over there who are well known uh, on air pundits who were just straight up ducking me. One because I had held the clearance and actually knew what I was talking about, and they were just you know whatever the whatever they see on you know Talking Points Memo, Daily Coast, the Huffington Post, and the New York Times is what that's what they go on TV and say. So there's nothing beyond that for them. They have no real experience to draw upon, especially when we're talking about national security. Um, but they were trying to make that story go away. And then it just didn't go away. Um, Sarah Huckabee Sanders was standing in front of the American people today trying to make the case for the Trump administration. Here's what she said about, well, the hypocrisy at play. If Hillary Clinton had won the election, which thank God she didn't, but if she had and she had been in the same position, she would have fired Comey immediately. And the very Democrats that are criticizing the president today would be dancing in the streets celebrating. So it's just the I think the purest form of hypocrisy. 
Yep, it is a pure form of hypocrisy, but also Democrats are comfortable with hypocrisy. They're comfortable with lying if it advances the cause. Uh, you, you see this with Democrats that are in contested uh, purple states, you know, where they're trying to it's, it's going to be a close election and a Democrat can pretend to be pro-life. You can't be a, you can't be a Democrat in good standing with the party and be pro-life. You, you cannot. But uh, they'll, they'll say, oh, yeah, I'm a pro-life Democrat or, oh, yeah, I'm a pro-Second Amendment Democrat. And they'll they'll let that go because they know that the Democrat will sell out when he or she gets into office and they just want to have as many D's stacked up in the Congress as possible. So lying, misdirection, whatever they have to do, they'll do. And this is the team we're playing against all the time. And uh, that's why with Trump, I, I, I don't know what it will take uh, for the majority of not just Republicans, but of, of the Congress and, and honestly, a, a strong majority of the American people to just never want to hear about this Russia stuff ever again. I, I don't know if we'll ever, ever get there because it's so it's such a useful tool. Um, I, I don't ever hear real debates about this. I should note uh, you go on some channels and it's just uh, it's all one side or it's all the other side. No one exposes their so-called intellectual champions to real uh, to real uh, vigorous exchange of ideas anymore. You just have the echo chamber effect, uh, which is why Democrats are creating an alternate, they've created an alternate reality for themselves. They've created a reality where saying that the president is a traitor is, to borrow a term from them, normalized. They can't prove it. There's no evidence for it. And it's a really terrible thing to say. But think about what that gives them. It's not just that the president is illegitimate and therefore not really the president, uh, but also the president is is a traitor to his country. This is this is mainstream thinking within the Democratic Party and in the media right now. Um, I, not all of them say it, but enough say it that, you know, that many others agree. And those who say it are not pushed back. They are not uh, shouted down. They're not told that that's going too far. In fact, you've got uh, was it Blumenthal? Uh, Senator Blumenthal says we need an independent prosecutor who can charge those who, quote, committed treason. Who who committed treason? They haven't even come up with a theory of the crime yet. How could this even have happened? Um, the, the Comey fight has nothing to do with Comey. This is the this is the real bottom line of all of this. It's not about Comey. And yeah, we can talk about how they had a deputy attorney general that had to come in. That's who the FBI director answers to. They want to put that person in place. And he wrote that letter saying why Comey was fired. The letter makes sense. Yes, it was delayed. But this is to say this is a constitutional crisis. It's completely within the president's power to do this. And I would just note for the Republicans out there, appointing a special prosecutor is such a dumb idea. I know people will say, because it, it feels good to be virtuous and say, oh, well, we need an independent independent look at all of this. Well, okay, uh, the moment you bring in a special prosecutor, there's going to be a momentum to get some kind of a win. And a win means take somebody down, even if it's not Trump. It's one of his top people. Uh, we saw this during the Bush administration, right? It went after Scooter Libby, completely trumped up nonsense. People still don't even know that all he was ever charged with was, was obstruction and lying to the FBI. The FBI was able to trip him up in the course of many, many long interrogations, okay? People say, oh, Scooter Libby did all this terrible. He, he was never charged with anything other than lying to the FBI and uh, and obstruction. But there was a special prosecutor there. I saw some conservative, I think, today, I can't remember who it was, saying that 
they should bring back that special prosecutor, Fitzgerald, um, and make him. A, I'm like, wow, that is that is a terrible idea. But anyway, uh, here we are. They're trying to bully. Not only are they getting the full benefit for the purposes for the purposes of the narrative out of the Comey firing, but they're trying to bully Republicans into the self-defeating act of setting up a, a special prosecutor here because it'll never be okay. If the special prosecutor does not bring criminal charges against Donald Trump or one of his top people, which will defame and greatly undermine, if not destroy the administration anyway, they'll say the special prosecutor was a setup, right? Look at what happened with Clinton. The special prosecutor's there. Was that the, the hand of justice? Oh, no. You know, he, he was terrible. You know, Ken Starr, he was the worst. He was a weirdo. I mean, they're just playing the game here. And all of the pretense about how this is a constitutional crisis or Trump committed treason, they will say anything. They will say anything because this is just about hatred of the administration and longing for the existence that many Democrats and many on the left think they would have had if Hillary Clinton had won. Oh, it would be such a better place, such a better country. I'd like to stop and sit down with them and say, you know, Trump hasn't even done that much yet. And Hillary wasn't going to do that much that you were going to love. Maybe you should just take a little bit of a step back from entwining your uh, ab- the essence of who you are in, in the political cycle and the news cycle, especially people who don't even work in this stuff. You know, you see these lunatics are running around, these uh, Hollywood types who act like we're in the midst of a nuclear war or something. And it's just, it's madness out there, folks. It is, it is madness. This is this is dogs and cats living together in mass hysteria. All right, hitting a quick break. 844-900-2825. We will be right back. Does the Comey firing cast a shadow of your talk, gentlemen? What's the fire? The U.S. Congress. You're kidding. You're kidding. You're kidding. You're kidding. Was he fired? Uh, Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov there. Uh, <laughs> some press, press tossing out some questions. You're kidding. Uh, that's great, man. You got Trump meeting with Russians today, as others have been noting throughout the day. He clearly does not care what the media says. But uh, you've also reached a point. I think you've reached a, a hate saturation point with the media and Trump. They can't hate him any more than they do. They're calling him a traitor. They, they're calling for impeachment. They're, you know, they, they want him locked up. They want. Uh, this is not but this is not the way it's always been. We all know that. Right. I mean, this is. Yeah, they, they hated Bush, but it was different. It was a little different. Um, they they waited until a few years into the Iraq war to go with the Bush is a war criminal. He should be locked up and Cheney's a war criminal. He should be locked up. That took a little time to build, too. They were just calling Bush stupid all the time, um, which is not not accurate. Uh, but nonetheless, Walter in Florida, WFLF. What's up, Walter? Dos Vidania. Dos I, just, I have a simple uh, explanation for what's going on. I, the word power has a lot to do with it, but I call it the Obama fictional uh, delusional syndrome. And it's especially difficult in two areas, in New York and in the uh, uh, bubble swamp of Washington, D.C. Yeah, it's it's become a... It's become a a lifestyle choice to hate Trump so much. I mean, this is, I, by the way, there are all these stories I'm reading about how marriages are breaking up over Trump. There are uh, people I know have come across roommate 
advertisements that are like no Trump supporters allowed as a roommate for you know an apartment or a house. I mean, it, it's crazy, man. I mean, this is this is just completely out of control. Well, it's really about the cultural war, and I hate to simplify it. I don't mean to be too simple, but it's really that simple. What they think they have gained in the last eight years looks like it might be lost, and that's what they're angry about. Yeah, well, well, well pro- progressivism, and thank you for calling him, Walter. Progressivism is is, uh, is is more than a political belief. It's also a deeply internalized part of a, of a progressive sense of self. Um, it's much closer to what a true believer in communism would have felt as as a connection to their ideology. It's not just this is what I this is a system of beliefs that I apply to government policies in the hopes that good things happen and that the government's a little better than it would otherwise be. No, it's you believe this because you are a good person, a smart person, a righteous person. And when you have evidence that comes together or you have opposition voices that tell you that that may not be true. People don't want to give up. They don't want to give that up. They don't want to just be be told that there's not a, uh, you know, there, there's not an answer that allows them to be superior to other people. That, that's one of the great promises of the Democrat Party. It either offers you an excuse for all of your failings. You're a victim. You're oppressed. You're under the heel of the oppressor. Or if you can't claim to be a victim or be oppressed, it pretends you're a friend of the oppressed and you're a great and virtuous person, right? To be a Democrat is either to be a victim who deserves uh, compensation and amends from those who are oppressing you, including the government and, of course, Republicans, or it's to be somebody who is a friend to the oppressed and a good person, a wise person, a better person. Um, what does that mean for policy? Meh. That's secondary. It's secondary to the emotional appeal, to the feeling that it gives to Democrats. I mean, I sit around, I'm a conservative, I'm just like, I don't want to pay as much money in taxes, I don't trust the government, I don't like the government, it's failed in so many ways, can we have the government do less stuff, and I just want people to live in freedom and prosperity and be happy, how do we achieve that? I don't think that, I don't think that makes me a good person, I just think that might make for a better version of government, but that's just me. we got hour two coming up, stay with me team. He spreads freedom. Because freedom's not going to spread itself. Buck Sexton is back. Team, let's talk about conspiracy theory, shall we? I know there are whole shows devoted to this, and now I should have some, you know, uh, UFO-sounding music in the background and, and, you know, talk about, I don't know, Area 54, right? Isn't that the one? Whatever the area is where the aliens are. Uh, 51, thank you. Thank you. (laughs) My bad. That one, not 54 is lovely this time of year. 51 is where the aliens are. Um, but yeah, uh, the conspiracy theory, which is what it, if you break down the term, that's what we're dealing with with the Trump Russia stuff um, because they, they have not yet been able to produ- produce any connection between, and but, but connection is not the right word. They, they, they would get me on that one. No, they haven't been able to produce any evidence. They haven't been able to produce anything to substantiate the claim. Okay, let's step back from that for a second. Interesting exchange on CNN, I don't know, earlier in the week. I forget. I wanted to get, it to, get to it yesterday when you had one of their political analysts, and I don't know well, who's an anchor over there, who's a political analyst, the anchors do political analysis, so how to, you know, someone explain that to me. But they they try to 
play this game of, of separating people out into different roles, even though they're all really doing the same thing, which is uh, pushing Democrat ideas and, and politicians. Uh, but this is what uh, this is what one of the discussions turned into on conspiracy stuff. You found many examples. This is this is happening on the left. Yeah, look, I, there's no question that Donald Trump traffics more in conspiracy theory in uh, bits of news. Yeah, yeah got to get in the Trump that wind up there, not but... being true than any presidential candidate and president that we've ever seen before. That said, I think a lot of Democrats dislike Trump so much that they're ready to believe anything, anything that's said negative. about him. So one anything example during the uh, health care debate last week. Welcome to the party, pal. That's right. They will believe anything. And that should be uncomfortable to people who are otherwise uh, well-intentioned, well-informed, and try to have sound judgment on things. It, it should be troubling to them that they have reached a point. And this is, it is a mass hysteria in the true sense of the term. There are millions of people across the country now who really believe that the president was part of this international scheme, that he's the illegitimate president, that he's a traitor, and that he's eventually going to get found out and thrown in prison I, I wish there was a way that i could bet against them like monetarily bet against them that was legal for me to do i'm not i'm not i don't know I'm, i don't i'm not somebody who gambles so I, maybe there is a way i have to go to like a otb or something i don't know but i wish there was a way that i could bet that they're wrong because i would because there's just no way and yet they'll believe they'll believe almost anything that should be troubling to them and yet it's not uh this is a change this is a change in the discourse. It should be noted that, yeah, th there were Obama birthers. And I know people will point that out and they'll even talk about how Trump demanded to see the birth certificate. But birtherism wasn't mainstream ever. It was never something that you would have seen major Republican senators and uh, the uh, biggest voices in the Republican movement spending time on. It just wasn't. It never happened. Uh, Trump truthers are everywhere, and really the Democrat Party has become a Trump truther party. Uh, there are no prominent Democrats who try to turn down the volume on this a little bit and try to stem the tide of crazy. They all just pile on because they know that this is where the progressive left is right now. This, this is the movement. This is the wave. You can either get on it and ride it, or you can get crushed by it if you're a Democrat. That's how they feel. That's because they have no scruples, um, but that's where it is. But I, I wanted to finish with the rest of what this guy said about the conspiracy theories, just so you can hear some of them. A reporter spotted uh, a bunch of beer being brought into the Capitol. Uh, that tweet was retweeted more than 3,000 times, largely by liberals on Twitter saying, they're taking away people's health care, and, and they're celebrating and, with beer. And then you heard, you heard even, I think, elected members of Congress say they were lots, cracking beers up and celebrating. Headlines everywhere. Not true, though. No. Uh, never was true. Was for something else. Uh, you know, so that's Some one example. Some reception or something on the... You know what they're talking about, right? Fake news. They won't use the term. That's what they're talking about, though. When there are reporters who are saying that Republicans are celebrating with beer after the health care vote, after people are losing health care, and that's not true in any way, shape, or form, that is fake news. That is a real thing. Uh, they won't use the term, though, because it is a way that Donald Trump shuts them up and causes problems uh, for the left. But if we play by the rules that they predetermine for us, if we live within the boundaries 
of what they consider to be, they being, I like the term the left, just because it throws it all in there, right? Progressives, Democrats, socialists, communists, the media, but I repeat myself, um, that that takes care of all of it, right? So the, the left, uh, the, the political left, liberals, I guess you could call them, but that's, it's such a misnomer, really. I know we call them liberals, but they're the antithesis of liberalism. Uh, so... Um, that's, I, we just want to establish that there's even some awareness among Democrats in the media that the Democrat, uh, mind right now will believe anything about Trump. I mean, a story could come out tomorrow, um, on, and it could start on Facebook and somebody at the New York times or one of these places would believe it, you know, just some post about how Donald Trump isn't running a, a multimedia or isn't running a multi-billion dollar real estate empire and media empire before becoming president that really all along he was like an international drug cartel leader or something. Somebody would believe it would get a lot of retweets on Twitter. If you came up with this story about Trump, no matter how crazy it was, if it was damaging to Trump and it was, it had some, some very rudimentary, level of believability to it, which, I mean, the drug thing is crazy, but you know what I'm saying. If it just even had a hint of truth to it, or not even truth, just a hint of believability, right? It seems plausibility is the word I'm looking for. If it seemed even remotely plausible, they'd go with it. And by the time it was disproven, it will already have done its damage, and it just adds to the Trump hatometer. They hate him more. They will hate him more after reading it than they did before, and the hate does not lessen when they realize that what they believed was false. Uh, I, I wonder if my some of my fellow conservatives who who seem to believe that this Russia stuff is real, I wonder if they'll ever decide that they've been had all along. This has just been conjured. This has been a creation. It's been trumped. Pardon me. It's been trumped up by the media because it has. So then we get into the. I, I know we've been talking about this a lot, and I, I want to move on to some other topics: airline stuff, healthcare, uh, Sir, fighting ISIS in Syria. Uh, former Navy SEAL Brandon Webb will be joining us to talk about his new book. I've got a lot of other things to talk about on the show, too. I don't want to just be sitting here talking about how crazy. But, I mean, it was the, every news site that everything was dominated by this Comey firing. By the way, Comey's going to get I, – I, I love the, 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 the big tears. What was it? Rand Paul said the, the crocodile tears from Democrats over Comey. There's now reports that he's going to get a nine-figure book deal. Um, or is it eight figures, nine figures? I don't know. Double digit millions, I think, is what the report is. Uh, so, yeah, it would be eight figures. Um, nine figures would be really big. Uh, but he, he's going to get, you know, $10 million, $20 million for his book deal. Comey's going to be just fine, okay? We, we don't have to all sit around and worry about Comey. And it's not an effective—I know I'm repeating a little bit of what I said to you in the, in the uh, previous hour, but it's not even an effective way of shutting down an investigation— um, in fact, the short-term politics of it are, are more problematic, I think, than anything else. Um, but Comey had become a very politicized actor in all this, and they wanted to get rid of him. And I think Trump just got sick of him. And Trump's the kind of guy who's like, you know what, I'm sick of this guy, and I can fire him, so I'm going to fire him. And I don't care what they say about it. And you know what? I'm okay with that. That, that, that doesn't, it doesn't make me think the Constitution has been lit, lit on fire, and we're all going to be uh, you know, having like the secret police come after us in the middle of the night. Democrats worry me with the secret police. You know, if you if you oppose climate change, there may be somebody taking you in the middle of the night in years to come if Democrats have their way. Uh, but I am not worried about the, the Trump secret police or anything like that. That's just uh, it's crazy. But what happens now? Okay, you got Feinstein saying that she wants a special prosecutor, of course, for 
come before the Judiciary Committee and brief members on the reasons and the timing of the firing, as well as what steps are being taken to ensure this action will have no impact on the work of the FBI. So, okay, that's, um, you know, that, that she wants she wants a briefing on Comey's firing. Fine. Comey's testifying next week, I think. That's already that's already set up. Um, and also here on, on CNN, I see investigators want national security, ex-national security advisor Flynn's documents regarding Russia. And they're subpoenaing uh, Flynn right now. That's that's happening. So they're going to get Flynn uh, on the record. Now, what'll be interesting is if they don't give Flynn immunity to testify, he may be pleading the fifth, which the best thing that can happen for the Democrats is Flynn takes the fifth because then they just run with whatever story they want, right? Then, then the conspiracy becomes whatever they say the conspiracy is. Uh, they'll just use that to, they'll, they'll use that as a fill in the blanks. Uh, Flynn made some mistakes. I think that much is clear at this point, but uh, again, career military guy you think he sold out his country for russia what for like a thirty thousand dollar speech or whatever it was he's gonna sell out his country so it is a really it is it is slanders in fact i'm at the point now where it bothers me just to repeat what democrats are saying about the president and some of his current and former top people because it's we're, we're in when did you stop beating your wife territory just just the repetition of the accusation taints the person's reputation. Just saying this stuff enough times over and over uh, creates a, a, an echo chamber effect that leaves lasting damage on the characters, or at least our perception of the characters uh, that are involved. So the Senate Intelligence Committee has invited Comey to talk. Oh, another big part of this I didn't get into. Um, this is that they're saying that Comey requested more resources for the FBI's Russia probe right before he was fired. Um, Justice Department spokeswoman Sarah Flores said this is totally false. Um, I know Sarah. Sarah's great, actually. Side note. Uh, But this is just, once again, you're always going to be asking, this is an ongoing investigation. Yeah, they're going to ask for more resources. Why is that such a a surprise to anyone? You know, you, you can sometimes see something and just understand that that it is the normal way of business and not shoehorn it into a narrative of, oh, it's all so nefarious and so terrible. Um, but that's what's going to happen here. Um, so, yeah, they've got some stuff coming up with more testimony. And uh, you had Trump meeting with the with uh, Lavrov today. So there was some or was it uh, Tillerson met with Lavrov? Um Trump defended his firing in Comey. Uh, this is all going to continue on. Bottom line on all that, the investigation's not over. It hasn't stopped. It hasn't been averted. It will continue on. Firing Comey is a just like colluding with the Russians was an enti- would, would be an entirely ineffective way and very risky to sway the election. Firing Comey is an ineffective and pretty risky way to uh, subvert the investigation. All the information is still there. They still have investigators on this. And now Comey's going to be able to talk. We can see. At some point, they've got to stop with this. It's classified. I can't answer that on all of this. You know, we, we should we should be forced. We, we should know. The American people should know whether an evidence exists or not. They've got to move this a lot faster than they have been. Because if there's already evidence, we have a right to know. 
because the lingering cloud over this administration that Democrat, Democrats are hoping to turn into midterm victories and a presidential win, that's all this is really about, by the way, and their hatred for Trump. But uh, that cloud of alleged treason needs to be removed. This is doing tremendous damage to faith in government institutions, faith in the presidency, uh, faith in our in our elections. Um, the, the Democrats will burn the whole thing down if they have to. You know, this is a, a one big version of if they can, if they can't have the presidency, nobody can. That's really become the mantra. That's the attitude. Uh, we'll hit a break here, team, and we'll be right back. We're going to change up some topics. We want to talk to you. Uh, well, we're going to talk to you about health care. And where that stands right now, also going to get into uh, The Killing School, which is my friend Brandon Webb's new book. It's just out this week. We'll talk to you about that. We have the author joining us. And uh, we'll talk about the fight against the Islamic State uh, using Kurdish militias in Syria. ISIS is not on the ropes yet, but they've taken some punches. So we'll talk about that. we got a lot of things to hit on the show here. Uh, we'll be right back. The Freedom Hut rocks online, too. You can hang out with Team Buck anytime. Plus, get Buck's latest news and analysis. Go to BuckSexton.com. That's BuckSexton.com. Are you not entertained? The Buck is back. Dan in North Carolina on the iHeart app. What's up, Dan? Not a whole lot, Buck. How are you this evening? I'm hanging in there, sir. Thank you. Good, good. Listen, I... I have seen it worse. Uh, I went through the 60s and the 70s. Uh, I'm a Vietnam veteran, and I came back, and I even seen it worse. I've seen Kent State. The only difference that I can, and, and I know your program is America Now, and that's very important because it is now what's going on. But we have seen all this in the past. And uh, they they keep throwing the same things at us, but just in a different volume, because in, in 1970, there were 205 million people in this country. Now we don't even know. We know it's above 300 million. And so 45, 46 years has really added a lot to their, to their base. But the bottom line is I, I, they're no good. I mean... And I, I would like to refer everyone to Paul Harvey, 1965, if I can. I'm sorry, refer everybody to what? Paul Harvey, 1965, If I Were the Devil. He wrote about this. He had a, a, a radio show broadcast about this. And I think it probably puts it all in a pretty good nutshell. And... Uh, and like you said, this treason thing, this treason thing with, with Donald Trump just totally floors me because I look at the last eight years of Barack Obama, and I think treason was committed time and time again. And I never, we never, I mean, the total, total politicization of the Department of Justice, the FBI, the IRS. I, and these are things we have facts on, but nobody seems to want to... Uh, and the Clintons are lost. They're a lost cause. I, I mean, back in the 90s. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Yeah, it's it's amazing what people will believe now. Um, and it's really troubling also. Thank you for calling in, Dan. Uh, but it's it's troubling to see that there is no accusation that is too damning and too flimsy in terms of the evidence for the Democrats when it comes to Trump right now. They are... Uh, they're just in, in in psychotic attack mode. That's what I think I'd have to call it, psychotic 
attack mode. I mean, they have, they are uh, in a in a berserker rage of sorts, um, like the old Viking berserker rage. Um, but yeah, it's it's uh, astonishing to watch this whole thing play out. Uh, switching gears for a second here, Obama went to a climate change speech for which he used a private jet and a fourteen car convoy, of course, because you know. That's what one does when one's upset about climate change. But he made some comments that I think very clearly tied into the election. Play it, please. Or tied People into have a tendency to politics right now. Uh, blame politicians when things don't work. But as I always tell people, uh, you get the politicians you deserve. <laughs> and if you don't vote and you, you don't participate and you don't pay attention, then you'll get policies that don't reflect your interests. This is a classic Obamaism, by the way. It's hard to think of a uh, more uh, a more platitudinous, uh, intellectually flimsy statement that oh, you got the politicians you deserve. That's why you. That's why you need to vote. Uh, this is like when people stand up and say, you know, the world's a dangerous place, and everyone starts clapping for them. Um, Obama, I always have found to be. A fascinating test of whether someone is honest or not about what is interesting, because Obama says so much that is not even the least bit interesting, insightful or worth hearing that everyone claps for. It's like we're it's like we've all been trained. Right. Everyone claps for it. Everyone says, oh, that's so amazing. It's so brilliant. Uh, but he, he was at this European climate change event. And wait, was it? Uh, uh, yeah, that's right. It was in Milan, I think. 14 car convoy helicopter above all that stuff and but he wants to lecture everybody on climate change this is one of the best gigs in the world by the way to be a highly paid speaker on issues of climate change to have the dispensation from the climate change gods that you're allowed to fly around in a private jet for the speech you know he could just like tape the speech and send it in they could play it on a big screen uh but i i wonder now if have we reached a point where we can say that the fundamental principle of the Democratic Party is, in fact, the full embrace of all-out hypocrisy. Our guest now is Kevin Williamson. He's roving correspondent for National Review. Check out his latest on nationalreview.com. Kevin, thanks for making some time. Hey, what's up? Uh, let's talk first. Uh, I, I have to get you to just give me your sense of the Comey firing, and then I want to talk to you about health care. We've talked about Comey firing a lot, but what's 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 the Kevin view on this? I don't think I have anything useful or original to add to this conversation. I don't think anybody I does, think Kevin. I think everyone's already repeated themselves a hundred times today, but go ahead. I think everything's been said. Um, one thing that people might want to think about, something I did write about a little bit today, is that um, while the president is generally assumed to have uh, complete authority to fire agency heads and things like that, that's actually not entirely true across all of the federal government. Uh, there are certain positions where once someone's been appointed, they can only be fired for cause, like malfeasance or non-performance of duties and things like that. And, uh, you know, a lot of these things, and the FBI is one of these things, it's a creature of statute. There's no reason that Congress couldn't, in theory, uh, set up a system by which the FBI director serves a certain tenure and that uh, he doesn't serve just simply at the pleasure of the president. And if you think that it's a problem to uh, that you want to uh, maybe shelter the FBI from a certain amount of uh, political management, and that might be something you want to think about doing, although, of course, 
the more you insulate them from political interference, the, the less accountable they become. So there's a, there's a trade-off there. But a situation like this is maybe not the time to be having that conversation. You want to have that conversation when you're not in the middle of a, a controversy. Like yeah, this, this is like this is like getting in the middle of a food fight. Be like, guys, like maybe we should eat more broccoli. <laughs> like it's not... <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So let's that, 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 be, be, be always exciting, Kevin Williamson. <laughs> well, no, I'm, I'm just saying it's you know there's no way that you could you could uh, be for or against uh, the ability of the president to fire the FBI director for the next 48 hours or so without everyone screaming you know well screaming at you from one side <laughs> or the other as you know. Uh, but on healthcare, I, I read your piece, Kevin. I really appreciated it because I. I think that um, I think that Republicans and Democrats are, are lying to people. And unfortunately, most people like to be lied to when it comes to health care. Yeah, there is a tendency to say you can have everything you want and nobody has to pay for it. That um, you know, somebody else will somehow pay for it. And there is a certain kind of magical thinking there. When you've got a country that's very wealthy uh, and it's full of people who, for whatever reason, feel like they can't afford their health care individually or at the family level or maybe in their businesses. But somehow we think if we roll them all together and launder the money through the federal government, they'll be able to afford it then. And, um, you know, there's there's a, a couple of problems with that. One is uh, this kind of wishful thinking about that. And that's what I was writing about when people want to talk about having a right to health care as though declaring a right in something changes anything, which, of course, it doesn't. There's still so many doctors, so many hospital beds, so many pharmaceutical factories and all that. And declaring a right into that would be just, you know, kind of meaningless. But secondly is. You know, one of the problems we always talk about on the kind of wonkish side of the healthcare debate is what's called the third party payer problem. And that's just simply you get all sorts of price distortion and weird economic distortion when people don't pay out of their own pocket for what they consume. So in healthcare, that's either government or insurance companies. But that is also the most popular feature of the healthcare system is third party payers. Uh, people believe, for whatever reason, that they have a uh, you know, kind of moral right to having their healthcare subsidized. So they believe that not only should someone else pay for it, whether it's an insurance company, uh, their employer, or the government, but they also think that that's probably the best and most effective system for delivering health care, when in fact we, we have good reason to believe that it isn't. I, why, why is it so unthinkable that we would reach a place where there's enough of a choice in plans that I could say, look, I, I will pay my health insurance costs up to 5000 or 10000 or whatever, but if I have a medically necessary problem beyond that, then insurance kicks in at a, at a substantial level and picks up most, if not all, the tab. Uh, but also then I could know prices along the way with doctors so that at least I'm getting more value for my dollars along the way. I mean, the way it works right now, Kevin, is you know you go into a doctor's office, even if you have insurance, they get into this fight about what's an allowable charge, and maybe you get stuck with a higher bill. And there are all these games that are being played. You don't even know what the cost of a visit is when you go to see a doctor. You you, you don't know, and in fact, yeah, the doctor's know, this, this, office this, this, does this not really know. Really annoying uh, aspects of it, and the story I, I've told a lot. But if you'll, you'll bear with me, I'll tell you again. By all means, I needed a procedure a couple of years ago, a little minor thing, and I was about to change jobs, and I thought, well, maybe I'll just pay for it out of pocket and get it done during a couple of weeks that I have off uh, between between my two different jobs. And so I called the doctor to say, you know, what does it cost if I just want to write you a check, you know, for this? And what I got was, well, check to see if your insurance covers it. And I said, well, no, I don't want to check to see if my insurance covers it. I'm sure it will. What if I just want to pay for it? So eventually, after being transferred to 47 different people and calling a whole bunch of different medical practices, I got a couple of price estimates. And one of them was, you know, X dollars, and the other one was about 25 times that. 
you know, if you want to go buy a Honda Civic and you say, what's it going to cost? You know, it might be twenty to $27,000, depending on the options, but it's not twenty five to $550,000. Uh, it's just it's a goofy market where you don't have you don't have functional prices. But what I've discovered though is that um, you know I mostly pay for my own health care out of pocket um, because I'm you know a guy in my 40s I don't have a lot of health care expenses and there's a doctor I like who doesn't take insurance so my you know my insurance card says American Express on it. But when you pay for it out of pocket, you actually get much better service and appointments get kept and you can get prices then uh, once you've got that relationship. You know if you need some lab work. They'll say this is going to be $325, and, and you get it. And you've still got insurance in case they get hit by a bus or have a heart attack or something, which seems increasingly likely. But um, it's, uh, it's just a goofy, goofy system, and we're doing things that are making it worse because we're trying to do things that are popular rather than things that are necessary. Yeah, well, this is why whenever someone – anyone who's gone to a dermatologist's office, and I know dermatologists deal with very serious issues, up to and including cancer, but – a lot of what dermatologists deal with are not that serious, but they are fee-for-service. Things like uh, Botox yeah. and other procedures that are huge money makers. Uh, people make a lot doctors, – doctor's offices make a lot of money. But this is why when you go into a dermatologist's office in a major city, pretty much anywhere in the country, you know they're, they're giving you chai lattes and there's very comfortable couches oh, yeah. to sit on and, and you're, you're, you're seen on time. And you know, it's a completely different experience. People think, well, why is it when I go to my GP, it's like I'm in the – uh, you know, the, the influenza ward of a third world country all of a sudden, and, you know, we're all packed in, there's no AC, I wait an hour and 15 minutes, like, well, you know, your GP, you're, you're paying him a $15 copay, and he's trying to see, you know, 10 people an hour. Yeah, and I understand that, you know, people, a lot of people don't have that much money, you know, not everyone does that well in life, and there are people who need help, and I understand that, but arranging a system that takes care of the relatively small part of the population that's got real financial and economic problems is a lot easier than trying to reorganize the entirety of the healthcare market so that nobody has to think about those things. One of the interesting things about Obamacare uh, is that the ACA basically tried to import the Swiss system into the United States, where you've got a totally private uh, medical system, you know, private doctors, private hospitals, and all that, but you've got heavily, heavily subsidized insurance and a mandate that everyone has to buy insurance, and the government does some price setting and, and those sorts of things. But one of the things they got wrong was that in the Swiss system, you've got pretty high copay. You've got pretty high out-of-pocket expenses. And one of the reasons that's necessary, and they do the same thing in Singapore and a few other places, is that it, present, it prevents overuse of the system. It's a way of putting the rationing on the front end of things. So you get real markets emerging because people actually have to reach into their pocket and pull out a couple of hundred francs. Uh, is it a couple hundred francs? I don't know what it is. Maybe it's 75 francs when they go, to, um, when they go see the doctor. And uh, just the fact that these transactions happen, that people have to think about it, that they have to be responsible for some significant share of their own medical expenses changes the way the market works entirely. What we're trying to do is import a system like that while minimizing the amount that people actually lay out of pocket, while minimizing the opportunity for real prices to emerge and real markets to emerge. And so we're going to, you know, it's going to be the Swiss system, but as run by Louisiana. And we know it's not going to work. Yeah. but we love Louisiana for our Louisiana listeners. Uh, but uh, I will just put out there that, you know, you mentioned uh, trying to get the cost. I went through a very similar. And this is one of the things about the healthcare system that I think is the most maddening and also is a very clear way for everybody to see what the deficiencies really are and how messed up the whole system is. And everybody, we're talking to Kevin Williamson. He's a roving correspondent. For National Review, you can read his latest at nationalreview.com. But Kevin, I, I went to get a—I uh, didn't have it done, part, partly because when I found out what the the price 
scale I was dealing with was, uh, to your point about what a car costs, I was going to have a, a, basically an orthopedic surgery done for a sports injury, and they said, mm-hmm. well, your out-of-pocket could be four to $40,000, depending on a number of variables that we can't even tell you right now, including what's reasonable and customary for the procedures, who does the anesthesia. Uh, and I'm like, well, well, can I set that up now? They're like, oh, no, sorry. Well, four to 40000 is too big of a range for me to roll the dice on. Yeah, that's a spread. You know, this is something that I, I always pointed out when I used to be a, a newspaper editor. You would go into city council meetings or school board meetings, and they would come out with this project, and they would say it's going to cost between one number and 40 times that number, or one number and 10 times that number. And if your spread is, you know, it's going to be 40, uh, you know, 4000 or $40,000, you just haven't thought about it hard enough. You know, you haven't really worked out the details. And um, that's something that's just going to have to be done. But until we start having a real market where you've got lots of consumers doing lots of transactions with lots of providers with money changing hands out of their own pocket, you're never going to have a system emerge where you can actually do that. And that's when you get comparison shopping and you get downward pressure on prices and you can get to the situation where you're moving away from worrying about health insurance to worrying about the cost of health care, which is what we should really be thinking about. It's not as what's my monthly insurance premium because you never want to use your insurance, right? The insurance you're going to use if something bad happens to you. What you want is to have health care that you can afford, which means a doctor's visit that's maybe 40 or 50 bucks, that your prescriptions don't cost you a month's pay, and that you know if you've got something short of uh, you know catastrophic injury, that it's not going to be a 10-year salary to get it dealt with. Yeah. What do, what do people, Kevin? I mean, you know, you know, you know, lots of uh, of liberal media types too. I'm sure. What do you think they think uh, if if the Sandernistas? When the, the the coming leftist revolution here, and we did get single payer, do they think that that means that you know Buck the the desk warrior can go to the surgeon at the hospital for special surgery that did like you know the last giant's running back knee surgery or something, and and they'll and it'll just be paid for because do they not realize that there are a lot of people that want that surgeon and that that's just not going to happen? <laughs> Yeah, I think that is kind of what they think. I mean, there's a couple of things that happen with those, those sorts of progressives. One is just um, it, it's ignorance. You know, they, they take a trip to Europe and they see the nice parts of France and the nice parts of Germany. And they think, well, why don't we do things like that here? And they come home and they talk about single payer, not even knowing that most European countries don't have anything like single payer. They've got insurance and private providers and all the rest of it. There actually aren't very many countries that have single payer systems. You know, it's the UK, Canada, and a, and a couple of others. Um, the other thing is that Progressives tend to be people who come out of big organizations and tend to be comfortable working for big organizations. You know, they're in government, they're academics, some of them work for big corporations, things like that. And their experience is going to be that these sorts of systems actually provide pretty good health care. You know, if you're an employee of a Coca-Cola company, you get great health insurance. You get great health insurance because they've got a million employees and no one wants to be the guy who blows the Coke account. So they get they get well taken care of. So their experience tends to be somewhat narrow, and there's a certain amount of, I think, confirmation bias going on there, where if you're someone who's worked for a school district your whole life, like my mother did, then you think, well, you know, uh, gosh, we've got really good benefits. Why can't we just do this for everybody? Not understanding what actually makes that system financially possible. What happened when I worked for the NYPD for a short while was that I was not a uniformed officer so I wasn't part of the union health care plan. I was brought in as a contractor, a counterterrorism contractor. 
uh, and we were just like offered some plan that was really, I think, a precursor to Obamacare. <laughs> I mean, it was terrible. Oh, yeah. And and you saw as well, you know, the 40,000 plus uniform members of the NYPD get one thing. But if you're in this special counterterrorism category and you're a civilian who's uh, who's been assigned essentially to the NYPD, you see what it's like to just be somebody who's part of this very small pool with no uh, with, with no political sway and, and the insurance companies don't care about. And, and it was truly night and day. I mean, the the, uh, the officers would walk in and, of course, public sector union, they'd walk in and they would basically not pay for anything. And I'd walk in and they're just like, well, you know, nothing is covered. <laughs> so this is what it really does depend, I think, on what your experience has been in the past. But let me ask you before we let you go, Kevin, uh, how do we how does this get made better? Because I feel like Republicans are just changing some of the basic mechanisms that Democrats rely on for the delivery of health care with a lot of subsidies. Yeah, I mean, it's not going to get fixed until there's someone who cares more about fixing it than getting reelected, because it's going to be unpopular uh, what's necessary to do to fix it. I mean, ultimately, it's going to get done because you run out of money. Um, you know, as long as you're insisting on the coverage of pre-existing conditions, then you get Obamacare, because if you've got that, then you have to have the mandate. If you've got the mandate, you've got the mandate penalties, and you've got the subsidies to go with it, and you've got some version of Obamacare. Um, what eventually I suspect will happen is that as these programs become more and more dysfunctional, people will find ways to make choices on the private market, whether it's you know finding insurance outside of that system or simply paying out of pocket for health care. And these government-run programs will become, I suspect, less and less relevant to people over time because there still are, you know, there's great improvements being made in healthcare, both in terms of quality and price. Uh, you know, things that used to be, you know, science fiction or, uh, you know, everyday realities now. So we should always, you know, kind of keep our eye on on that, on what's actually happening with the real delivery of healthcare products and medical services, which is which is pretty good. And uh, to the extent that you can, you know, maybe sneak past uh, government interference in that in various kinds of ways, I expect that people probably will. Kevin Williamson, roving correspondent for National Review. Kevin, thank you so much. Great to have you. Thanks. Talk to you soon. Uh, Team hitting a break here. We'll be right back. Lisa in California. iHeartApp. What's up, Lisa? Hi, Buck. How are you? Good. How are you, Lisa? Shields high. I'm great. And go Team Buck. Okay, Berserker, I finally found something I knew. I didn't know if you knew. Do you know the origins of Berserker? I think I said it on the show before. It's Norse warriors that would fight in a trance-like fury. Yes, but do you know how they got in a trance-like fury? Um, no, that part I don't know. Psychosybilic mushrooms. Is that really true? I mean, I know people say that uh, assassins would smoke hash, but that's disputed by some. But is this, is this like uh, they think or they know? Dr. Jordan Peterson has a lecture on it on YouTube. You can watch it. And he says they used to take these mushrooms because they thought it's berserker stands for bare skin. So they thought they were taking these mushrooms. They are hallucinating that they're becoming the bear. It makes them super hard to stop and super hard to kill. It's like taking down somebody on methamphetamine. You can tase them three or four times. They're not hitting the ground because they are berserkers. Huh. Well, you know, I've been around people in the past on occasion who I think were on shrooms, and, and I don't think you'd want them next to you on your side in a bar fight. So I guess, exactly. I guess things have changed. One more thing. Can I ask you? I have heard, but it hasn't been confirmed by anybody special. Do you know if Trump has actually um, decided to move our Israeli embassy to Jerusalem? 
I saw some stuff last night bouncing around journalist world about how he was not going to do that, and people were saying it was a broken promise, but I have not seen whether that's confirmed or not. Uh, my sense is that even if it were confirmed as a report, Trump could change his mind on that, and then it would be a promise kept instead of a, a promise broken. And uh, we'll, we'll see. But So, yeah, I, I did see something on that, and initially it was that he was not going to move the embassy to Jerusalem. Okay. So, yeah, so well, we'll see. Been very helpful. Thank you. Thanks, Lisa. Great to have you. Um, so we're going to uh, move on to uh, coming up here in the next hour. Uh, Brandon Webb joining to talk about The Killing School, his book about the Navy SEAL sniper program. Uh, Brandon was an instructor in the SEAL sniper program. Uh, also going to talk to you about the fight against the Islamic State in Syria right now. You have Kurdish militia groups in Syria, the YPG uh, making some real headway against ISIS. And we have uh, four deployed U.S. special operations uh, helping them in that fight. And we have airstrikes occurring helping them in that fight. Uh, but there are some very complicated political realities in the region that I want to bring all of us up to speed on. We'll talk a bit about that and maybe even talk to you about some airline stuff, too, because, well, that's interesting as well. They're saying you maybe can't bring on laptops on some flights. What? Be right back. Welcome back to the Freedom Hut on an island of liberty where you're the party and it's full of fellow patriots. Buck Sexton kicks it off. Welcome back, everybody. We are joined now by Brandon Webb. He's a former Navy SEAL, a combat veteran with deployments to Afghanistan and Iraq. He's also a New York Times bestselling author. He has a brand new book out called The Killing School Inside the World's Deadliest Sniper Program. My friend, Brandon Webb. Good to have you, sir. Thanks for having me, brother. All right, man. Tell me, tell me about the book. It looks awesome, by the way. The cover design Thanks. alone is a phenomenal win. So, tell me about this. Yeah, you know, it's so the inspiration behind the book was, you know, I'd written my memoir, The Red Circle, and had a lot of fans still wanting to know a little bit more about my the last part of my career running the sniper program for the SEAL community, and as well as you know, living in Manhattan and going to these cocktail parties, you have a lot of liberals asking these inappropriate questions. And it just became obvious to me, like, you know, you get asked, like, how many people you kill, um, those types of questions. And I said, you know what, I'm going to, so I'm going to create this book to give people a really, not only an in-depth look behind this program and, and kind of demystify, because there's a lot of mystery around the sniper community, um, give them a look, but also take them down range and present a very uncomfortable scenario, like put them in the sniper's shoes and let them actually see what it's like to look down the scope and take a shot. And it's not a video game. It's not the movies. It's, you know, one of my, the stories in there, uh, when Jason Delgado, a, f a friend of mine, we feature in the book, who's a Marsoc sniper shoots a guy for the first time in the back and watches his guts spill out. And he, the guy literally grabs his stomach, heels over and takes, you know, five minutes to die on the street a, a few hundred yards away. That's what I wanted to show people. Like, look, this is, this is serious business. And, you know, there's a tremendous amount of sacrifice that the sniper community is, has, has shouldered since nine 11. And these guys are doing amazing things, but I really just wanted to that nitty gritty look at the sniper community. To those who are wondering, Brennan. So if, if you're able to make it through, Buds training, right? Which people there have been 
TV shows just about buds, and it's it's become a part of American lore now, right? Everybody knows about uh, yeah. basic underwater demolition school, and 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 people know about the rigors and being in the water. You get through all that, you you get to the point now. We're getting closer to becoming a seal. When do you, when would one make the decision, and and how does it go? that you're not just going to be a member of the teams, but you're going to specifically be a sniper. So typically how it works is you finish seal selection, the buds, that's about seven months. Then you do another three months of seal tactical training, advanced training, and you get, you get awarded your seal insignia pin, your, your gold, gold trident. Then you get to a seal team. You do about 12 to 18 months of training with your seal platoon uh, and then you usually rotate overseas. And when you come back, you get you're eligible to attend different schools, um, like a like a sniper program. And you, so so guys will gravitate to it and ask to go. Or in my case, we were short two snipers, and they came to myself and Glenn Doherty. Um, for the people that remember uh, Benghazi, Glenn was my best friend and my sniper partner. He was one of the the heroes. Um, CA contractors, GRS guys, and Benghazi. Um, but Glenn and I got handpicked to go. So sometimes you get chosen, but a lot of times guys gravitate to the role because they, being a sniper, um, is you know being a SEAL is is an elite kind of status in itself. But a sniper is a step above that, and so guys kind of gravitate to to that role. And then there's you know we have a funny saying in the SEAL teams like either you either the guys that would make a good sniper or he'd make a good breacher. And, you know, the breacher is the, the big, big hulk of a guy that can throw a cutting torch on his back and a, and a hooli tool and <laughs> bust down doors. A very, two very different types of personalities. And you talk in the book about some of the, the snipers that you know personally, right? Uh, Nick Irving, whom I've also met, the yep. U.S. Army Ranger. I've, I've heard him speak about uh, his his time his time as an army ranger. You mentioned uh, Marsoc sniper Delgado. Uh, you also uh, talk about Marcus Luttrell and uh, Chris Kyle. And you know snipers now have become so much more uh, a part of what the American people think of when they think of U.S. military operations abroad because of guys like you and the and the other individuals you're you're naming in the book. And you talk about their stories. What do you want? I mean, you mentioned speaking to probably mostly liberals here in New York City at cocktail parties. What, what would you want people to know about snipers that they that they wouldn't know just from reading the New York Times? Yeah, well, it, that's just the thing. I think there's been all these movies and, and some books written, but I wanted to, to, number one, show people why the SEAL program is the best in the world and, and to take away from the other units because that's why I definitely wanted to feature the different branches of snipers. Um, but the SEAL curriculum itself and the program that's producing the best snipers that I've ever seen, you know, it's when you compare it on paper to the other sniper schools, you know, they may get, you know, in the Corps, you may get a bachelor's degree in sniping. When you graduate the SEAL course, you're, you're at almost a PhD level. Like that's how much, how long the course is, how much time we spend with these guys. And so I want people to understand the dedication and the, the work that goes into to training those guys and, and as well as the guys that go through the course. And then I want people to understand that, like get into a little bit of the psychology behind the, what it means to be a sniper and have to deal with, uh, like um, my friend 
Alex, I, I feature in the book, who's a SEAL sniper, uh, was doing a sniper overwatch in Afghanistan, watching this, this village all day long, seeing this bad guy leave his home and his 12-year-old son run after him and kind of pull him back and say, you know, visually you could tell, like the kid was saying, please don't go, please don't go fight the Americans. Um, and then a couple hours later, Alex has to take the shot and kill the guy because he's, he's engaging with U.S. troops. And then after the fact, you know, Alex comes back to the base and realizes he's got a son the same age and, and kind of like has to deal with that um, and what, what that's like and, and being able to compartmentalize that in a way that says, look, we're, I'm here to do a job and I'm a professional, but still there, there is that human, human factor element that I think is important that people, people know about. And you know just as well as I do, because you and I have had conversations about it, these kind of stories from the front lines need to be told. Um, you know, writing is very therapeutic for me, but I also believe that history should be, you know, mostly written by guys who have been there and experienced it firsthand, not some politician, you know, that, that never left the green zone um, and or some academic. And people need to read these stories and understand that, the special operations community has shouldered this heavy burden as well as the sniper community since 9-11 and that we need to make better decisions on our U.S. foreign policy and, and how it's kind of played out over the last, um, you know, over a decade under Bush and Obama. And we've kind of created a mess. And so in the special operations community is, is definitely a part of the solution, but I don't think it is, is all the solution and a lot of politicians have treated the intelligence community and the special operations community as this, oh, they're just going to go solve our, the global war on terror. And, and you and I know that's not the, the case. It is not. Um, everyone should check out The Killing School. Uh, it is out today. It is just out now. Fantastic book. I have my copy in my hand as I'm speaking to you, and I've started reading it today. You should do the same. Go on Amazon or in fine bookstores near you. Brandon Webb, former Navy SEAL and author of The Killing School, Inside the World's Deadliest Sniper Program. Brandon, buddy, great to have you as always. Good luck with the book. Let us know how it, how it uh, comes together. Yeah, thanks, Buck. I appreciate you having me on. Hackers came, but the French were prepared. Da -da 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 -da. That's the French. May we be answered. So uh, this is what happened here. Uh, interesting piece in the Times. Of, of course, it does uh, fall into the uh, general category of stuff that allows stuff that allows. This is like a Jeopardy category. Uh, the answer is things that allow the press to talk about Russia. Um, this this is in that category. Um, or what is what is thing? What are things that allow the press to talk about Russia? It's got to be in the form of a question. Buck, get it together. Uh, I would do well on Jeopardy. I would love to. I would say I'd love to go on Celebrity Jeopardy, but I would have to become a celebrity first. So I'm. I'm <laughs> I have to go the. I think I have to go through the normal Jeopardy route, and uh, that that's. Uh, I should give that a shot. Actually, we've had on um, uh, Tom Nichols before. He's a smart guy, nice dude, uh, and I think he was like a five-time Jeopardy champion. Uh, he's a conservative author. Okay, fuck. Eye on the prize. So, um, New York Times writing about what's going on here with the French election. As you know, Macron... Oh, I haven't even talked about the French election in the HUD. After all that... Yeah, Macron won. 
merveilleux. It was a tremendous victory for the center in France. It was, uh, how do you say, uh, the brie was uh, spread all over the baguette. It was uh, fantastic. The, the, the wine cork was uh, popped out of the bottle and the celebrations were parfait. No, I mean, it, yeah, they're, they're excited. Macron won like uh, 60% plus of the vote. It, w- it wasn't even close. And Marine Le Pen, who had some great lines, I have to say, in the course of the debates and the nasty back and forth of the campaign. Marine Le Pen is, is not, not the victor, obviously. Uh, we'll see what happens in in a few years um, if the status quo in France continues because Macron, the uh, investment banker who was part of the Hollande, uh, part of the Hollande administration, although he did say of Hollande, the French president socialist, um, he said that uh, Hollande was turning France into Cuba without the sun, which I give him some props. Macron gets a high five on that one. Um, you know, fa- fair play to Macron. But so, so he he won substantially, as as all the polls showed that he would, and and uh, that's so. There's no surprise there at all. But the story now, other than of course all the political follow on, what does it mean for France and? Yeah, we got our own problems in this country in terms of economic stuff. So unless it affects us economically, I don't really, you know, I don't get too into it. Um, but what does it mean for cybersecurity? This is an interesting tidbit. The media is all over it, of course, because it's another way of talking about the Russia investigation or the R- Russia hacking, which is this global scourge that just popped up out of nowhere, except it's been going on for many years. So not really sure how we're supposed to take this newfound focus on all things Russia and hacking that the media has when this is by no means new. In fact, I've mentioned uh, before on the show, if you want to see uh, some or see uh, read a discussion of the KGB's propaganda tactics and, and also the terrible political analysis that was widespread within the, the Soviet Union about America during the Cold War. Fascinating stuff to read. You can pick up uh, the Matrokin Archive, which is it's two books based on the Matrokin Archive, um, which were the KG, which were the KGB archives. Um, the Sword and the Shield is the you can get it on Amazon uh, right now. And this is just a book that I like. It's by Christopher Andrew and Vasily Matrokin, who's that's why it's called the Matrokin Archive. The Sword and the Shield is the first one. Um, it's the secret history of the KGB. It's a fantastic read. It really is. And then there's a a second, uh, a second addition to that. The world was going our way. The KGB and the battle for the third world. Um, but uh, the first one I can I can highly highly recommend to you. Uh, but for example, the, the the Soviets had trouble believing that we were as trusting as we were and as incapable of protecting secrets during the Cold War at some parts, uh, at some points as we were. So they didn't believe, they thought it must be disinformation. They, they thought it must be uh, a means of misleading them because it was so easy for them to steal some of our very sensitive stuff during the Cold War. Um, that, But their, their level of political analysis was often way off. Um, but propaganda is nothing new for Russians, for the Soviets, for the Russian state. Uh, and I think now we're seeing a lot of overestimation of the capabilities and the impact of Russian uh, propaganda efforts around the world because, of course, Hillary lost. It must have been because there was some enormous international scheme of unprecedented scope and ferocity 
that cost Hillary Clinton the election. It couldn't have been that whenever she would shake the hands of a normal person, you could kind of see her just mouthing, Ugh, filthy pleb. You know, it just it couldn't have been that she stood for nothing other than herself. It couldn't have been that she lies uh, with, you know, the, the fluency of, well, <laughs> of, of her husband even. Um, it, it couldn't have been any of that, right? No, no, it had to be an, a massive Russian conspiracy. That's what they say. So b- back to France, though. Look, you're leaving out the French and the resistance against the cyber hacking, monsieur. I'm kind of, I, I could use a steak frite right about now. That'd be, that's like, that's, people say, what's your favorite meal? I would just say steak, obviously, and fries because I'm American. But steak frite would be very high on the list. So uh, this is the way uh, the New York Times writes about this. It has to do with the su- Russians trying to cyber. It's like, fuck, what are you even talking about? Now you're talking about steak and French fries. You're just making us hungry. Uh, it's about the Russians and their efforts, the alleged efforts by the Russians to hack Macron's election or the French election and, and defeat Macron because they want Le Pen, uh, Le Pen, Marine Le Pen to win. Uh, here's what the Times writes here. The Russians, for their part, were rushed and a bit sloppy, leaving a trail of evidence that was not enough to prove for certain that they were working for the government of President Vladimir Putin, but which strongly suggested they were part of his broader information warfare campaign. The story, told by American officials, cyber experts, and Mr. Macron's own campaign aides, of how a hacking attack intended to disrupt the most consequential election in France in decades ended up a dud, was a useful reminder that as effective as cyber attack can be in disabling uh, nuclear plants or power grids, they are no silver bullet. The kind of information warfare favored by Russia can be defeated by early warning and rapid exposure. Um, So this is interesting because I think it's, you can take from this a conclusion that the writers at the New York Times wouldn't want you to necessarily, which is, yeah, straightforward cybersecurity measures can really mitigate your risk of the Russians influencing a campaign or destroying your company or whatever, whatever it is that the worry is we're supposed to have. Um, so the French IT team of Emmanuel Macron uh, decided that they would create dozens of false email accounts, uh, complete with phony documents, to confuse the attackers. That's the Times writing that there. So they set up some dummy accounts, created, put some false documents in there, and uh, yeah, they were able to deal with this assault by Russian cyber geniuses. Uh, the scariest thing that they did that I read about in this piece were phishing emails. Here's here's what the Times wrote about the Russian cyber effort to hack into the French, the consensus centrist globalist French presidential candidate, candidate Emmanuel Macron's email accounts and all the rest of it. Uh, here's what they said about it. The phishing emails were high quality, said Macron's digital director. They included the actual names of members of the campaign staff and at first glance appeared to come from them. Typical was the very last one the campaign received several days before the election, which purported to come from the digital director himself. The final email enjoined recipients to download several files to protect yourself. So, while I want you to remember this, because you're going to see a lot of Democrat senators in this country 
in the weeks and months ahead, and a lot of media members saying, we need to protect ourselves from the next Russian cyber attack. We need to have a full accounting of the Russian attack. It was so scary. Uh, I can tell you how to defend yourself against what the Russians did to, whether you believe they did it or not, doesn't matter, uh, to Podesta and the DNC. Uh, don't download on. Don't download an email from somebody if you don't know who's sending the email. Uh, keep an eye out for basic phishing, t- ph phishing techniques. And uh, if somebody says that they're the prince of a country that does not exist, or even if it does exist, but all they need is your bank account information, and they're going to give you ten million dollars, don't give it to them. I have just saved us now. I, I I don't know. I really have saved the government and, and all these investigations in the House and the Senate. Millions of dollars, you'd think, by preventing them from having to waste all of our time and investigators' time to come up with a full strategy to defend us from the Russian cyber hacking. Uh, you know, when they do a brute force attack on Google and shut the whole thing down and we can't get it back up again, then, then I'll worry a little bit. But if it's just... Uh, sending Podesta an email or whatever, sending the DNC an email that says "click on this" and we'll protect your files, and just just don't just don't click on it. <laughs> there there you go, magnifique, merveilleux, Bucky's uh, the cyber expert extraordinaire. He spreads freedom because freedom's not going to spread itself. Buck Sexton is back. Uh, as you know, into the position where we will have Raqqa surrounded. The idea is, ladies and gentlemen, that the foreign fighters not be allowed to escape and return to constitute a threat against free and innocent people elsewhere, whether it be in the Arabian Gulf, North Africa, and certainly Europe. That's U.S. Defense Secretary uh, James Mattis talking about the uh, ongoing effort to oust the Islamic State from Raqqa. And there is progress there. Now, one of the major criticisms that many, including myself, leveled against the Obama administration when it came to uh, their fight against the Islamic State was that they were too slow and that they weren't serious in the early stages. They underestimated the threat. And in fact, the Obama administration downplayed the threat of the Islamic State as an entity that could not only plot and execute major terrorist attacks abroad, but also could hold territory and act as a state unto itself. Um, We saw, unfortunately, years uh, of lost opportunity to beat back ISIS effectively, and now, with the operations ongoing in Mosul, in Iraq, in northern Iraq, and uh, in Syria, up against the, well, in the region of the Iraq-Syria border, and then now in northern Syria, and closing in on Raqqa, which is the Islamic State's uh, capital city. It's de facto capital. We don't like to say capital city because we don't recognize it as a state, but it it is their capital. Um, Those operations are Progressing. Uh, We do have uh, some momentum here with our allies, both in Iraq and Syria. And now we are in the stages where not only is there a a cleanup operation underway in Mosul, but also the possibility of taking Raqqa away from ISIS uh, is very real. And so we have to prepare for that. But there are, as you can imagine, 
some problems, uh, not just in the fighting and in defeating the Islamic State. That presents its own set of challenges. Uh, of course, how do you limit casualties among our allies? How deep into the fight should U.S. special forces and uh, U.S. enablers, uh, h- how deep in the fight should they get? What, sh- what sort of frontline risks uh, should they be taking um, in, in, in Iraq or in Syria? Uh, so these are ongoing discussions. But right now you have, let me just establish a little bit of what's happening in Syria, because this is not getting much media coverage at all. There's some news stories on it, but the focus has been so much on Comey and FBI and Russia and Putin and just uh, health care and other policy matters. But of course, lately, it's been so much of the Russia-Trump collusion, surveillance, investigation stuff that's out there uh, that the uh, incredibly important, really crucial stage of defeating the Islamic State is not getting the kind of attention that I, I really think it deserves. So here's the state of play in Syria. I've talked to you a bit before about what's going on in Iraq. Main effort there is finishing up the operation to oust the Islamic State from Mosul and to close off corridors of escape west from Mosul into Syria. Uh, That is ongoing. That's an an Iraqi uh, army-led effort, about 100,000 Iraqi combined forces, including uh, militia units and uh, Kurdish Peshmerga, which is the Kurdish, it's really a professional army, but it, it operates technically kind of like a militia in the sense that it's not a national army yet, although we'll certainly talk a bit about that. Um, that's what's going on in Iraq. On the Syrian side of the equation, uh, you have the YPG militia, a Kurdish militia, that is our main ground force. That was the big missing aspect of our counter-Islamic state operations in Syria before. We didn't have a ground force to rely on. The Free Syrian Army got largely uh, crushed and pushed aside, and the two main combatants in the country were the Islamic State and the Assad regime. But now you have a credible and reliable ground force with the Kurds of the YPG. Now, the Kurds are an ethnic group, a Muslim, non-Arab ethnic group that live in, uh, in Syria, in Iraq, in Iran. They're the largest stateless ethnic group in the world, depending on the estimates you see, 20 million, 30 million, and stretching back to Woodrow Wilson and the League of Nations, there was talk of a Kurdish state. The Kurds want their own. Now, this is very important for why it complicates what's going on with ISIS and the fight against ISIS. You have to understand the Kurdish angle, the Kurdish equities here, that their perspective, and that then ties into the Turkish perspective. Um, but just so you know, the Kurds want their own, for stretching back for a long time, want their own country. They want international recognition of their own country. Now, they may not officially want that right now, as in they're not publicly in Iraq uh, lobbying for it, but it's been long known that Kurdistan as a federal region in northern Iraq and Kurdistan as an idea is something that is very popular with the Kurdish people. So you have this Kurdish militia of fighters that are getting U.S. support 
that has been able to continually beat back the Islamic State, take villages, take territory, and hold it. Uh, and that's been the that's been the key. And now, of course, you have U.S. airstrikes in Iraq, U.S. airstrikes in Syria. So we've been assisting all along, but that assistance is getting ramped up. It has just been reported this week that the U.S. is officially going to be providing arms to the Kurds in this anti-ISIS fight. And with the seizure of Raqqa looming here, it's very important. Taking Raqqa away from the Islamic State uh, would be an enormous propaganda blow as well as, of course, an important military objective, important strategic objective on the ground. But it looks right now like that's where uh, that's where it's heading. We're going to, there's going to be an opportunity to take back Raqqa, and then the so-called Islamic State will no longer have a capital, and this will have important ramifications, I think, for its ability to recruit from around the world. And just the whole narrative of the new caliphate, the new caliphate is here, uh, that ISIS puts out there on social media and convinces people to attack here in America or in Europe or all over the world. That narrative becomes much flimsier when you have no capital city that because it's been taken away by a bunch of Kurdish militia guys, which looks like it's going to happen. But the U.S. is directly officially arming this YPG Syrian Kurdish militia militia. So these are Syrians. They are Kurds. They are Muslims, but they are Kurdish speakers as opposed to Arab speakers, although I'm sure a lot of them do speak Arabic as well. Um, and they're ethnically different. Kurds and Arabs are different ethnic groups. So uh, this YPG becomes a problem, not for us. We, we find them to be very reliable. The Kurds have a longstanding history and well-deserved reputation. Remember, mountain peoples, because the Kurds, especially in northern Iraq, are a mountainous people resisting central government, people up in the mountains. Always remember that theme that I've talked to you about before. But the Kurds... Uh, have been a reliable partner for us in Iraq, in Syria. Uh, I am personally very pro-Kurdish uh, from my own uh, history and background. I won't get into it much more than that, but I, I find the Kurds to be, um, I, I think the Kurds deserve a lot of U.S. support and, and have for uh, a long time. So I'm somebody who, belie- who believes in the Kurds. Um, but back to uh, what's going on here, that the Turks are a NATO ally, an important one. They have a large military. They're essential for dealing with the refugee flow coming into Europe. They're essential for any number of NATO stability operations. And the the Turks are an important ally. The Turks do not, do not want uh, there to be a Kurdish state on their borders. Uh, This is a a longstanding issue for the Turks, they view it as a threat to the integrity of their country, uh, that they're, that the Kurds are uh, trying to develop this autonomous state for themselves because there are a lot of Kurds in Turkey just across the border. And there's been a separatist movement there for a long time. And, and in fact, a terrorist operation known as the PKK, the Kurdistan Workers' Party. Now, Turkey says that the YPG... Syrian Kurdish militia that we are currently working with in Syria to defeat the Islamic State 
is the same as the terrorist group, the PKK. We don't take that position, or the U.S. doesn't take that position, but the Turks are deadly serious about this, and they have, in fact, launched airstrikes against the YPG uh, as a result of their designation of YPG as a terrorist group. Um, There's a, a big problem here because the president of Turkey, Erdogan, has allowed there to be airstrikes on so, so the Turkish military has been engaged in airstrikes against the YPG. But as the Wall Street Journal here reports, quote, one of the most pressing concerns is the risk to U.S. special operations forces who work side by side with YPG fighters in Syria. Two weeks ago, over American objections, Turkish warplanes bombed YPG forces, killing at least 18 fighters. U.S. officials said Turkey gave them less than an hour's notice of the planned attack, which gave them little time to ensure that American forces were out of harm's way. So these are our allies on the ground. Uh, These are the people that are doing the heavy lifting in the uh, town-to-town, village-to-village fighting against the Islamic State in Syria. And, And we have our guys, U.S. Special Forces, embedded with them. And the Turks are bombing them because that's what a, a threat the Turks, that's how much of a threat the Turks uh, view them. Now, this is a very difficult and, and delicate diplomatic situation, as you can imagine. Um, I want to uh, give you a, a bit more of, of my sense of where all this is going uh, on the flip side of the break. Just uh, stay right with me, team. We'll talk a little more about our, our deep dive here into Syria, Kurds, Turks, oh my, you name it. We had very open discussions with the Turks. It's a NATO ally, uh, and NATO allies stick together. That's not to say we all walked into the room with exactly the same appreciation of the problem or uh, the path forward. We worked that out through extensive dialogue. We've been conducting uh, military and diplomatic dialogue with the Turks, and it was a very, very useful discussion today. So there you have Secretary of Defense uh, James Mattis once again uh, and addressing the other side of this. Yes, the progress against the Islamic State is uh, going well, and those operations are underway, and this is something to be uh, celebrated. I mean, it's been a long time in coming, And unfortunately, it's late in the game in the sense that uh, half a million people have died in the Syrian civil war. Countless tens of thousands have been brutalized, massacred, tortured, kidnapped um, by the Islamic State specifically. And this has been going on for years. We are finally now seeing a a policy that it should be noted uh, was advocated by critics of the previous administration four years ago. The, the critics, uh, and I, I was in, in writing, I believe, a National Review, maybe in 2012 or 2013 on this one, uh, critics of Obama's foreign policy on Syria would say, look, we, we need to establish a ground force we can work with, and we need to use airstrikes and help them take back territory from ISIS. And the Obama administration was uh, inept in the creation of a uh, ground force ally, largely because they were risk-averse, and they allowed the collapse and decimation of the Free Syrian Army and a slow, largely anemic air campaign. And there was a tremendous amount of suffering and lost opportunity 
uh, because of all this. So I, I think that it's I don't like to play the oh, let's just blame Obama all the time game. There's too much of that from uh, the witless and the unlettered in conservative media already. Uh, but on Syria, the Obama administration's foreign policy was cowardly and disastrous. It really was. Um, but now let's get back to what's going on here. So as I was saying before, and just to quickly recap, we have an ally on the ground in Syria, the YPG, Kurdish Syrian militia, that we find to be very effective in, in destroying the Islamic State and will uh, be helpful in taking back Raqqa. But now we get into some very difficult questions. Um, first of all, the possibility of a miscalculation by the Turks, in which the Turks perhaps even go so far as to uh, bomb too close to uh, one of our deployments. If, if the Turks take out a single U.S. Special Forces soldier with an airstrike, uh, you know, God forbid, but if, if that were to happen, uh, we'd have a diplomatic crisis on our hands because we've told the Turks, back off. You want to just now, I'm not saying that we've told them it in that in those words, but you know, you want to destroy ISIS, Erdogan, president of Turkey, and we want to destroy ISIS, and this is the best option we have to do it right now. But uh, you have some very real concerns here. I mean, here's at the end of this Wall Street Journal article. Let me just read this to you. Turkey and its allies are concerned the YPG will use the new arms to retain control over, over Raqqa, something U.S. officials say they are trying to avoid. Quote, the Kurds won't hand over any piece of land they have occupied except through force or if the U.S. abandons them, said Colonel Ahmed Othman, a leader of the Sultan Murad Brigade, a militant group backed by Turkey and fighting alongside the Turkish military in Syria. There are downsides to working with proxies. Uh, the biggest upside is obviously you're not risking your own troops and you also have an indigenous force battling an indigenous force. And this is a replay of the successful model we used with the Northern Alliance in Afghanistan to destroy the Taliban back in 2001, you will recall, with a minimal U.S. Special Forces presence and air campaign and air cover, we were able to oust the Taliban. That is now the template for destroying the Islamic State. But you got two big problems that loom uh, behind all of this. One of them is what happens when Assad is still in power and... We take back what ISIS has. Do we just allow Assad to stay? I think the answer, by the way, is yes, but that's going to feel icky. And then also, what if Turkey uh, really refuses to play ball here and causes some problems for us and says that they can't hold Raqqa after they've taken it, that the YPG militia can't hold Raqqa after they've taken it from the Islamic State? What do we do then? We don't have troops on the ground. We're just going to try to negotiate with them. It'll be very tough. So I want to keep an eye on the situation in the campaign to defeat the Islamic State. I think that it's not getting uh, the attention that it should. And uh, we will continue to watch it closely here in the Freedom Hub. My friends, please do check out uh, BuckSexton.com. We post stories all throughout the day that you can expect us to talk about here on the show in the Freedom Hut. Also, if you're not already, please subscribe on iTunes. Go to Buck Sexton with America Now in the search field in iTunes. It will pop up and please click subscribe pass the buck uh, if you wouldn't mind do me that favor and uh, tell a friend about the show and until tomorrow my friends as always no matter what comes your way shields high